Welcome to the fifth episode of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. Today we are conducting the second half of a very special interview. My mother has been gracious enough to come on the show and talk honestly about her perspective on our respective journeys relative to my being polyamorous and coming out to her. If you've not listened to the first part of this interview, I suggest you do that first. Before we get to that, though, I do have one quick announcement. Or, I don't know, maybe it's a request? This podcast was never about chasing success for us. Obviously, this isn't what you'd do if you were trying to make money. And we do this because we believe that we have the opportunity to really make a difference in the lives of our listeners, their families, and friends. We make this podcast in the precious moments we can steal from our other obligations each week. But we need your help to make it better. As of right now, our team is roughly three people, and while we have varied experiences with polyamory, we alone are not a community. We love the likes and the listens, we're profoundly grateful for the shares and the subscriptions. But what we really, truly need is your participation. So when you're listening to this podcast and you think I said something wrong, or you said something that really affected you, or you have a question about a topic, or a question about something that other people haven't said yet, or that could be a new topic, let us know. Leave a comment on SoundCloud, on our Facebook, or even email us at probablypolypodcast at gmail.com, which, if you forget it for your convenience, is written on both the SoundCloud and Facebook pages. That said, I'm going to do a quick recap and then get back to the interview. At the end of last episode, at the end of the last episode, my mother asked if I had ever considered how my changing from monogamous to polyamorous had affected her life, and I pushed back by saying that it wasn't actually a change. So, Mom, <laughs> can you tell me a little bit more about how this felt like a change that I was making? You know, to make that change the relationships in my life because of what you have chosen for your life is a whole nother level of thinking that I have to go through. First, I have to come to terms with what you've decided to do. And then I have to come to terms with how that affects my relationships. And you're right, generational differences play a big part here. And I'm not going to, at this point in my life, just drop all my friends and start all over. I don't know how that would work, actually. They're dying as it is. <laughs> Good news. Um, well, to, to jump back for a minute to this is a change that I made. If you are a parent listening to this, I don't think that you as a parent are literally ever allowed to levy that complaint against your child. And I'll tell you why. I didn't decide to be monogamous. I was forcibly and aggressively schooled that that was my only choice so that I didn't even know I had other options. But that's true about everything with children, right? With children, you do your best to tell them everything that you know about things and they accept your perspective as the default until they are able to get around to making decisions about those things themselves. And since my entire personality comes at a default, I'm, I'm never going to get through all of those things. Some number of the things that you taught me are things that will go unconsidered until the day I die and be replicated by me and my kid and his kid until somebody bothers to think about them. Mm -hmm. um, right? So I would not say that I made a decision to change from being monogamous. I would say that I realized I even had a choice. Okay. It's, right. To me, it's a different wording, but we're saying the same. In, in, and I understand how the way I say it 
could offend you. Well, it's not offending. I'm concerned that what well, you said, you're the one that changed. And this is, I mean, this is the beginning, right? The beginning way back was, mm-hmm. why do each of us feel like the other person should carry this burden, right? Uh, is that what we're talking about, though? What, why each person should carry this burden? What I'm trying to explain to you is my journey. Right. Well, no, 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 not not. But I'm saying, right, I feel like the, the reason that you say the sentence, you changed, is to indicate that... Again, this is where I said I felt like everyone was acting like this is something that I did to them. Mm-hmm. And that language just sounds like this is something you did mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. I, that, I can see how that... I, but I don't know how to say it. So give me right. words. My language, what I'm saying is this did change my life. Right. And so now I have to incorporate this new information into my life, both in terms of you and your relationship with the people around you, but also with the people around me. Yeah, and I, I guess, I mean, I, I see what you're saying there. I guess the, the language for me would be more something like, this isn't something that I changed about myself. This was something that I discovered about myself, right? So it wasn't necessarily not true before. That's a better word. I just realized that it was true later. And so it's something that we're both going through. Right. right, which I think is the the thing that both sides sort of miss in their own trauma, right? That right. we're both traumatized by how this is affecting our lives. And of course, my meta critique would be that we're both being traumatized by capitalist, monogamous, cultural preferences in a culture, sick society that is self-damaging. <laughs> and I'd say that it's at every level all the time, but this is a specific microcosm of dealing with that network of enmeshed depressions. And... It feels for both of us like we're the, the primary acted upon person. Because for you, there's a sense that you have to go through all this trauma for really for nothing. It doesn't improve your life or help your life. If I had just never discovered this, your life would have been the exact same without the trauma. At least from your perspective, I get the benefit of being happier, feeling like I fit myself more, feeling like I fit into this space more. So I'm getting something out of it, right? I wouldn't be going through all this trauma if I didn't get anything out of it. If I looked at all the pain I'm causing myself and thought it doesn't balance some positive, I just walk away from it. So therefore it's on, not on, but I have this sort of, in a sense, primary responsibility because I'm getting benefits, right? And then my response is something like, but it's my life and I'm the one getting traumatized for just discovering who I am. My choices weren't don't be traumatized, be traumatized. It was lie about yourself and enjoy that trauma. Don't lie about yourself and enjoy that trauma. And I chose which of the two traumas seemed less terrible. And then was sort of, as you noted, sort of bitter that other people were being, were reacting as if they were traumatized by me when I felt like we're all traumatized by this sort of larger system that resists that change. Because, I mean, it's really nothing that I have really said to you has traumatized you and nothing, not nothing, but yeah, right, but... But it's the when when each of us rolls out and runs into the rest of sort of self-reinforcing societal construct that we run into trauma, right? Like I think if I told you that and it was hard for you, and then you talk to all of your friends and they're all like, "Well, that's interesting. Let's see where that goes." It would have been really easy for you, right? It was the fact that you bumped into society everywhere you went, and society was like, "No," that made that traumatizing on you. I guess there's two. A part of me that says, if it we're being honest which I hope we're being honest, um, is, you know, I always envisioned that you would have what I have, that I, I have, I have an amazing relationship with a man who I just dearly love and I can't even imagine having a relationship with anyone else. That seems 
incredibly complicated to me. That doesn't mean that's right. It just means that part of me says, so you're telling me that what I'm doing doesn't work for you and doesn't work for what? 40%, 60% of the world? Yeah, probably 60% of the world. I mean, if you're looking at divorce rates. Right. 40% was just how many people are actively cheating on their monogamous partners at any given time. So somewhere, I don't know, somewhere in there, there's kind of, uh, there's some kind of feeling of blame somewhere. I don't know where it is. It's kind of like, okay, did I do this wrong? Did I, did I live my life wrong? Did I teach you wrong? I don't know. In, somewhere in there, there's some of that, and I, and I don't know how to reconcile that. Well, I'll definitely say I understand that a lot better now that I have kids. I did not have kids at the beginning of this because suddenly I have a strong desire for everything that I ever loved to be something that I present to my child, at least as an option. Now, I will say that I always wanted something so different than what you and dad had, not just relationship-wise, but life-wise, day-to-day-wise, long-term goals-wise, friends-wise, family-wise. It's always been so incredibly different that it never occurred to me that you would want to replicate what you have for me. So my thought is something more like, I want to give my kid access to all the things that worked for me, but I understand that as a unique human being with a unique mix of experiences and genetic makeup that he made us just through no fault of his own not like those things. Sort of how I have a spelling disability and I'm just no good at spelling. It's not that you guys failed as parents to teach me spelling. I'm just physically incapable of it. So I was never going to be, uh, my father was an editor. I was never going to be an editor. And my mother was a literacy specialist. I was never going to be a literacy specialist. I am terrible at those things at a genetic level. I didn't think of those as either failures or rejections. I just felt those as being different people. So you're going to have to go back and clarify that. What about all of us? I mean, about us? What do you mean you were going to be different than every part of our lives? All right. Well, look at my life, right? You guys, you guys both had careers. You both worked a lot in your careers, right? And I work the least of anyone that I know. I don't have one career. I have like seven careers. I'm doing a podcast and I'm starting a company and I'm trying to still be an artist. And I also have this ethics thing and, you know, sort of Zen lifestyle thing I'm trying to do. But I also do like homesteading and farming, (laughs) building mason jar, right? So I always wanted to pursue the things that I just loved, regardless of what those were, and always had a huge group of interests. Um, I don't know if you guys had less total interests, if all of your interests were encapsulated in the things that you spent that much time on, or you just focus your energy in a certain way. And, and, and it may be that that's what I look like when I'm your age. It may be by the time my son can perceive who I am, I'll have a successful business that I send the scene to put all of my time into. But as a child watching you guys, you always looked exhausting. I still am amazed by your work ethic. Now I actually want some of it for all the things I'm trying to accomplish, and I still just don't have it. And everyone says I work so hard. I don't work at all hard compared to you guys. I take so much time off. I make up for it by being just really competent. Like I can do things quick. It's not the same as working hard. (laughs) I mean, you guys had this house that I'm sitting in right now by the time you were my age. I don't even have a savings account. And I don't feel great about that because I'm scared of money. But it's not a thing that matters to me. And I always knew that wasn't going to be a thing that mattered to me. I remember, and this is some of my earlier, you know, sexual differences. I remember, I think fifth grade, the church had a, the church we were in growing up, uh, a Lutheran church, had a camp that was like church sex ed to offset 
school sex ed with the ethical part of sex ed. And they brought in four, I think four, four or five couples from the church who had only been both monogamous and never been sexually active with any partner other than the partner they were with to tell us how great that was, right? And the, the, the tagline was basically, if you only have sex with one person, it's better than it could possibly be if you had sex with multiple people. And my, my first thought was, how would you know? You have never tried having sex with other people. And also that if that were true, every single person who cheated on their partner, who had multiple partners, those are the people you should have brought in here. You should have brought in a guy who was like, well, I was with my wife for five years and I slept with someone else and then sex was just terrible after that. But there weren't those people, right? And if you go looking and you ask people like that, there are people who are going to tell you that. It turns out that when you sleep with multiple people, some people are more sexually compatible and some people are less, but the chances that the first person you ever sleep with is the most sexually compatible person you'll ever be with are just non-existent. So I always knew that I didn't want that, that I did not want to be monogamous with only one person. I didn't think that the polyamory was even a thing. I thought I wanted to be with a couple different people so that I knew what it was that I wanted and could know when I was with someone that it was good or not good have comparison classes, try things out. Like I knew that was not me in fifth grade. I knew I didn't want to have that kind of sort of sexual ethic. I knew I didn't want to be religious at all. I mean, I, I hated church so bad that when I was a child, I, I would lie in, in bed until my bladder burst because I was un laboring under the illusion that you didn't like waking me up for church. And that if I could stay in bed through church, you wouldn't drag me to church. So I was, I was inflicting self-harm to try and avoid church, which was a huge part of your life as a child, uh, in, as my childhood, my memory of your child, of, of our life as a childhood, right? So there were very, very few parts of your life that I knew that I wanted really early on. I thought your life was great for you. I thought your life made you happy. I liked how well you fit into your life. And I thought, that's what I want. I want a life that I fit in really well, that fits me really well. But I never thought it was going to be your life. Interesting. <laughs> So the flip side of having the kid, I definitely really get excited when my son does like the things that I liked. Like he's only about just under two, but when I'm like, have my toy from when I was two and he loves it, I'm like, yeah, he loves my thing. So I get why that's exciting, but I, I, I also, you know, I'm not that disappointed when I give him something and he's not that excited by it. That's actually all of my questions, or at least the other questions were addressed in some tangential way that makes them ridiculous to ask. Mm -hmm. So I guess one of my questions is what you envisioned in your mind as you were working this idea out been true in reality? In other words, are the theoretical ideas of being poly really in effect in your life? I would say yes, but I think you'd be surprised at what I think those are. Because I didn't really have any idea of how that would play out as far as relationships went. I had it more of an idea of playing out how living my authentic life would look. Mm. So a big part of polyamory, maybe the whole part of polyamory for me, is that I think that creating check boxes for classes of types of relationships is simply inaccurate to how relationships truly function. So saying something like, I am closed off to the possibility of any positive sexual interaction for the rest of my life, to me feels like a sort of obvious self-lie. The idea that that's impossible to have a positive relationship like that seems inaccurate to me. Also, 
everyone that I was with before I was polyamorous, I would have moments where I'd be like, is this really the best person I could be with? I never got to that stage with my current partner because before we got to that part where that normally happens to me in my relationship, we'd become poly. I didn't have to ask that question. All I had to ask was, is this person making my life better? And the answer just continued to be yes. And so I was always trying to make my life better. Yes, they are. My life better. Yes, they are. I thought that was a much healthier way to have a relationship with my partner. I didn't have to think, is there anyone who I'd enjoy sleeping with more? Is there anyone who'd be better at conversations? Is there anyone who'd be a better mom? Is there, any, you know, I didn't have to ask those kind of questions. And I, I have these very specific sort of vivid memories of my previous relationships you know, where the person had fallen asleep, I'd be looking at them in bed and I'd find some flaw or some personality thing that bothered me and go, do I really want that for the rest of my life? Will I really want to be with this person in 10 years? It felt so, well, it felt horrifying at the time, but in retrospect, it just feels very forced. Like you don't, I don't know why I need to make that decision that that person is a person that I'll need to be with forever. And, and only with forever, I should say as well. It's definitely clear that I want to be with my current partner for the rest of my life. But that became clear through an organic process of reaching the point where I can no longer imagine a possible future, regardless of contextual circumstances that's honest to who she is as a person, that would make me not want to be with her, and vice versa, right? And that seems like a very honest reason for wanting to be with someone for life, knowing they will always improve your life, right? But I don't have to also, at the same time, shut out the possibility that someone else could become pivotal to my life or improve my life. And it really is, you know, as we often say in polyamory to other people, it's just a lot like having friends. I just couldn't imagine the structure of friendship where you're only allowed to ever have one friend. Like, that just seems like such a, <laughs> a forced and difficult and weird convention. Is it actually possible that two people's needs are being met at the same time? Or is it that one person's needs are being met at the expense of another? And how do you know? Right. Well, and how do you ever know, right? I mean, I'd relate that back again to other types of relationships, which is, I mean, so to some extent, polyamory, because it, in America, at least, you know, monogamous relationships have reigned for so long in Western society. Polyamory is a lot like people trying to reinvent like religious customs of their heritage religions, right? So if you're trying to reinvent Hellenistic religion, if you're Greek or something, you're taking pieces of stories and then guessing and then adding what feels right to you and, and looking at other religions and what they do and seeing what fits. And we do that with relationships, right? So we say, okay, well, this doesn't seem to be a problem for friendships. It doesn't look like when I adopt a new friend, I've harmed the rest of my friends. You can. I've totally seen people bring on a new friend and just ignore another friend because they like this new person better. But then it's not about the new friend. It's about how you're ignoring your old friend and your old friend's claims for needs and your time and having their needs met. So, you know, with an open dialogue, hopefully... The other person will tell you if their needs aren't being met, you know, and there's a lot. And then this is one of the things we, we know. We know that polyamorous couples on average talk about their relationships, no joke, 10 times more than monogamous couples, which is funny because we have a lot of studies, like the, the few studies that are out there about sort of polyamorous relationships say, oh, they seem really healthy. But it looks like if you just took a monogamous relationship and made everyone talk about it 10 times as much, it'd probably be just as healthy. <laughs> the biggest thing that polyamory seems to do that we know for sure is force you to constantly check in with your partner and go, are your needs still being met? Am I missing anything? Am I going out? But I would ask how that's different than being in a partnership and having a close friend, right? I know people who are in partnerships where they're jealous of their partner's best friend. Hmm. 
because, oh, well, they're always out with them and they don't see me enough. We don't go on enough dates and I don't get what I want from them. And they, they share with their friend things they won't share with me. So you can be in a monogamous relationship getting none of your needs met because oh, that affection is elsewhere sure. just as much as in a polyamorous relationship. Right. I mean, the, the, and then so the last question that just comes down to the, the, the joke in polyamorous community is, is plumbing, right? Which is just, do you have the sex drive to satisfy the people that you're with? The only question at that point. But that also depends on who else they might be with. That's, that's also a problem in monogamous relationships. We know that 40% of monogamous relationships have different sex drives where one person is a high sex drive individual and one person is a low sex drive individual and the high sex drive individual suffers for not being able to have enough sex and the low sex drive individual feels guilty for making their partner suffer all the time. And that's, that's intractable in monogamy. That person will never, neither of them will ever have their means met and they can't resolve it. So are there polyamorous relationships people need are not being met? Sure. That's not a strike against polyamory. That's true of all types of relationships. Are there monogamous relationships people's needs are not being met? course but that's not a strike against monogamy unless it appears to be more endemic than it is in polyamorous relationships the the thought in polyamorous relationships is at least you have more flexible options all relationships obviously are based on trust and part of the poly lifestyle that worried me in the beginning is that i guess i just feel like it's really hard to find people that you know that you can trust i'm just wondering how you know that partners are going to tell you they've had sexual relationships that were unprotected sex or that that they are being honest with you about their needs or they're just like, yeah, sure, I'm fine. You know, I mean, and it's the true in monogamy as well. I'm not saying it's not. It's just that the repercussions are different, I guess. Unless, of course, someone is outside of the relationship having a relationship. But I'm talking about a true monogamous relationship like mine, where that's not happening. That's not a worry. You think that's not happening. I, I know it's not happening. <laughs> right. Well, I say, I say you think, again, not for you, you, but for you, the average. Right, right, right. Which is, it turns out that being in open relationships is safer statistically from STIs than being in a monogamous relationship if you happen to be in a monogamous relationship that's currently cheating. Mm -hmm. Since we know that 40% of monogamous relationships have someone in them that's cheating, that means it's actually 40% more likely to be dangerous to be monogamous mm -hmm. than to be polyamorous. But also that the, the threat to getting an STI is so much higher in a cheating relationship that it, it looks like it's probably as dangerous for STI acquisition to be monogamous as to be polyamorous. Mm -hmm. But the primary threat in polyamorous relationships, although I, I have met people who lied about their relationships in a polyamorous relationship, but I guess my question is, if you were dating that person and they were monogamous, wouldn't they have lied about that too? Yeah. So I knew a person who was in a polyamorous relationship and their partner was having unprotected sex with sex workers, contracted an STI and passed the STI to his partner. But most people who are having sex with sex workers are in monogamous relationships. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... not being honest about it. Right. I and mean, if he was going to lie in an open relationship where he didn't even have to lie, he was allowed to tell her that he'd done that, he was definitely going to lie if they were monogamous. So the, the idea is that you've created a culture of not lying is the reason you think that you can trust your partners more. And again, stats bear out that people who are... There's no punishment for doing anything like that. I have no reason to lie to you. Uh, my problem has been much more finding people who are who share my sort of sexual ethic, as in what I enjoy, not, not even ethics, that's not right, my sexual interests, basically, such that the people that I've been with primarily want to have more casual 
interactions and I'm comfortable with, and that tends to be why my relationships have ended, is that that person has come out of a period of the sort of honeymoon phase of dating me and decided to go off and be with a lot of other people, which they have the right to do. I'm not mad about doing, but that the conflict that they created between us made it not worth it for either of us to, work, to continue working through it. It just wasn't pleasant enough to be worth doing. But my problem is definitely not been that they don't tell me. For sure they tell me, and I'm just like, well, that sounds unfun. You had unprotected sex with who? Okay, I need a break. <laughs> I need space, you know. So they do tell you. They definitely tell me. That's usually where those relationships start to peter out for me, is when we have a difference in... I mean, I've had relationships for other reasons. I have not all that, but a couple of my relationships have definitely ended because that person wanted a lot more loose rules for what they considered mm-hmm. safe sex than I had. Mm-hmm. And they'd come back and say, well, I had this. And I'm like, that's great. You should keep doing that with that person. And then they can satisfy you sexually because I would like to not do that (laughs) until we know to my comfort level that you're safe. Well, I know it's very important that you be safe to you. Have you encountered a poly family in terms of my grandson? This question comes from my worry about him. Have you encountered a poly family where the parents are actually raising children like to the extent that that create that scenario that you envision for yourself? Do you know any poly families that are raising children personally? I don't have a lot of close friends that are poly that are raising kids personally because most of the people who are in polyamorous relationships tend to be on the sort of heavily socially liberal, almost to the level of activist liberal in most cases. And a lot of those parents are, either have kids very late or not at all. So or mo- not at all. Or not at all. Um, well, we know the more educated you are, the less likely you are to have kids. Huh. Right? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, sort of interesting. But yeah. Right. Right. Well, my particular peer group does not have kids. Like, I'm not early, but I'm not late. Uh-huh. Now, when I go to these conventions, the, the convention I'm going to soon, the uh, Atlanta Poly Weekend, which we talked about last week, uh, is actually bills itself as being one of the most family-friendly poly events. They encourage you to bring your kids. The focus this year is actually talks and sessions that are appropriate for both children and adults at the same time. One of the sessions that I will be teaching is actually negotiating with your kids inside of polyamorous relationships. There are a lot of people there that, that have kids, that bring their kids, that I've seen doing well inside of these spaces. There's not a lot of statistics, unfortunately, on polyamorous people because of the way that research is done and it's very it's very difficult to do research on polyamorous people because we count as a sexual minority and sexual minorities get a lot of extra protection from ethics review boards which makes it so that most people that try and do research on polyamorous people are denied the option or it's just too much effort so they just don't but from the few studies we do have polyamorous families seem to do as well as normal families from the interviews we have with children from polyamorous families we don't see any evidence that it damages them over time. And in most cases, they get more adult attention than their non-polyamorous peers. So do those adults come into their lives long-term and they know them? Or do those adults come in and it's, I guess it's up to the person, right? And again, you know, how is that different than divorced single parents dating? My friends, all my friends whose parents got divorced and then would go out with men. Mm-hmm. You know, my best friend's mom would bring guys home. You know, there were three or four of them that we met. Right. And but, did the kids bond to that chat person? Right. And then did they lose them? And, you know, when I was still monogamous was the one time I really damaged a, a child, not intentionally, but I was in her life for about a year and a half and we bonded very closely and she wanted me to be her dad. And then I broke up with her mom. 
I guess that's the hard part. I mean, I don't know. It's not, I mean, all of these questions are answered by it's different for every person, practically, probably, that I have. It's It just seems like uncovered ground. You know, for years we've been putting monogamy together, so there's social constructs and there's laws and there's and there's kind of agreements that people either keep or don't, obviously. But in a poly relationship, it seems like, especially in a married, when you have a married couple, aren't they, doesn't that inherently make the other partners unequal? And a lot of that depends on how much the people in the relationship value a marriage. Again, the people in most of my social circles see legal marriage as an inappropriate government intervention at best and actively harmful and maybe meaningless at worst. We take, we take promises and social contracts very seriously, so they take very seriously my commitments to my partners, which is very different than taking seriously my commitments to the state, which is sort of an odd way to make romantic commitments anyways to make them through the state you know as, as you know we mostly got married because of all the the benefits financially that the government gives you for being married which again is the the capitalist machine trying to propagate itself to make more money and make more consumption they you know bond a lot of things into that so i i, I would have to depend on how the individual person feels about that and when we run into that for sure one of the people that i was dating broke up with me because i was dating them when i got married to my, my primary partner and we didn't think to tell them because we weren't really talking a lot right then. And it didn't matter to us. We were just doing it for insurance. And we talked about it before. We said we we're going to get married eventually for insurance. It's not a big deal. So it didn't matter to us. But that person took it more seriously and felt like they'd been excluded from a major life event and didn't feel like it was an equal scenario and left. Although, speaking to them after that when they calmed down, that was the second time they broke up with me. It, it appears that they have a pattern of breaking up with people when they are happy and they fear that they will not continue to be happy and that looking back on it they didn't they thought that that was sort of the the excuse they used to accomplish the goal that they were sort of headed towards regardless hmm. so what if the relationship breaks apart what happens to my relationship with the partners that you have again am i breaking up with these people like you bring in you've got one relationship your wife and then you bring in another relationship. What's m my relationship with those people? Or what do you envision it to be? Uh, you know, I envision it to be whatever it is that you, know, you want it to be and to be based on what's of value to you, right? So like, I, I ironically, I think that to some extent your reticence increases the amount that I push people into your physical space. Because I feel rejected, I want to reject your rejection by bringing people around into the spaces where they're not supposed to be so that you have to choose me. I don't mean to do that necessarily, but sometimes looking back on it, like, why do I even want this person to come to Christmas? Like, I don't care if they're at Christmas, but I want to be allowed to bring them to Christmas. I mean, I think, you know, last Christmas we had a sort of fight about that with one of my partners who didn't even end up coming to anything. We had a bunch of fights about it because I wanted the space to have the choice to bring them. And it turned out it wasn't really... We just weren't at a point where that was appropriate and they didn't come to those things and now they're not a they're a much less major part of my life and you're still not interacting with them in any meaningful way and you probably will not now i doubt you know and i but i but i would have brought them to christmas you know partly because i just wanted to have the option too. like knowing that i could have brought them to christmas the whole time would have definitely i think changed my desire to even bring them oddly i i definitely don't think that partners have 
built-in social currency for other family members or should not other than the i mean of course the fact that they're just going to have more shared experiences with you like whatever the value of those shared experiences is but it wouldn't i don't expect anyone in my family to bond to any of my partners like if you happen to cool for you guys i guess but i have no intentionality that that's what's going to happen i don't want you guys to like take my partners out for coffee in an active way if you want to take them out for coffee because you like having coffee with them cool <laughs> but it, it's not the same kind of thing where you bring the partner home to get approval from your family so that you can move to the next step of getting married to have kids and to make them part of this functioning unit partly because we just don't work in those sorts of extended functional units anymore right like and, and those are handled differently like my current partner is also my financial and life partner and I think even if we ended being relationship partners, we would retain being life and financial partners. And then you need to approve of and be around because we are, because you as my, because the way that our family navigates things is that you as my parents are financially linked with me in certain ways. And so it matters that you approve of other people that I want to be financially linked with because if I share my costs and accounts with this person, that could affect you. But part of the reason I haven't, you know, brought other people for that kind of approval is I've never linked my accounts or the sort of your financial future to their success. And so it didn't seem like you needed to be part of that. In Polly, do you have children with other partners? You can. A lot of people have. And then how in heaven's name does that work? Again, this seems, I mean, it's, it's funny. It's, it's, it's so common in monogamous, remarried, multi-generational families and most of the time, people don't even notice poly families are around them. You know, if a kid says, I have two moms and a dad, they just assume that there was a divorce and the dad remarried. You know, how does that look different? One of my best friends as a kid had four parents and eight grandparents. Right. That's not my question. My question is, if you have a child with another woman, mm -hmm. in the old social construct, mm -hmm. which you've explained to me is not in your construct, your wife now is my daughter-in-law mm -hmm. what does that make this other woman yeah that's a difficult question to answer because the idea of my current partner is getting special status because we're married is illegible and in a sense offensive to me right explain that <laughs> so it's, it's hard for me to ask a question answer a question like well if she has this special status which i don't recognize or believe or see or understand what special status does this other woman have and i'm just like i don't well because you know in in our circles she's my daughter and you're my son Mm -hmm. Although she's my daughter-in-law. Well, I mean, I would think that, you know, that I'm much more interested in what a relationship's doing. So if I have another relationship that looks like the relationship I have with my primary partner, they're living with me, we're sharing expenses, you know, we have shared property, we have a child together, that you would treat them both the same way. The same sort of socially constructed way. Obviously, you have your own individual click or not click that could be a person that I could date that would be more like you and get along better with you, for instance, mm -hmm. that you might have more fun going out with or just... You know, my current partner is very introverted and I might get an extroverted partner and then you just guys have more in common. Mm -hmm. But the, as far as the social capital that they carry, I would imagine it's based on the things that we do that are part of social capital building. So again, having kids, sharing property, sharing expenses, sharing living space. And if all those things were the same, I would expect them to be get the same value, right? So so it, basically the the model here is that that would be the same as if you divorced and had another wife right yeah well and especially that would be the same so the child would be the same to me right yeah the child would still exactly be a grandkid as if i had divorced and had another wife 
And just like if I had divorced and had then remarried and had another kid, I would expect that like at Christmas, if both of my kids and both of my wife and ex-wife wanted to come to Christmas, they would all be able to come and they'd all get the same sort of respect as the mother of my child <laughs> that they are. So this is a really weird question. Uh-huh. But say you bring another person into your your relationship web and they're a contributing member of your, your group. They're working, and as I understand it, all the money is going into the family unit, the relationship web. Let's assume we have that. I have never had that, but let's assume we get there. If you get there. And then as you're getting to my age, mm-hmm. do you see those relationships lasting that long? I do, yeah. Or at least I see them as having the, sort of the same potential as any other relationship. So if that person got hit by a truck or a car and was mm-hmm. on life support, or if they could, if they were had a disease that they were sick with for the rest of their life, you would then be responsible for you would right yeah, yeah. you right. would take both of them in. It's the same, yeah. That's huge to me. Well, but you know, you'd also have, and mostly it's a diffusion of that risk, though. I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, I guess, twice the chance that one of the people that I was with in this theoretical scenario have a degenerative disease or get hit by a truck. But it also means that if one of them does, I still have a functional relationship with someone as well. I've seen monogamous people just completely and utterly destroyed by having to take care of their partner alone in a house and having no active sexual partner and having no emotional support and having no financial support. You know, so it's sort of like having insurance. You you have a, a guaranteed cost there, but you have a diffusion of risk. Hmm. So it's the same sort of thing. It's a much higher chance you'll have a problem. <laughs> but if you have a problem, it's a much less terrible problem. In a poly relationship, mm-hmm. if your needs are not met by your spouse mm-hmm. and you can't make that work, mm-hmm. then do you find someone else? to meet those needs or do you work on that relationship? Well, you have to be, I, I want people to be really careful about what I call Pokemon Polly. Pokemon Polly? Uh, so yeah, I guess that's not a generational reference you'd get. Pokemon is a game that's incredibly popular both in my generation and everyone younger than me where the tag the tagline is gotta catch them all. And the, the game works by collecting a bunch of these individual little monsters that each have different skills and abilities and you build a team of six that cover all your bases. So there's, there is a group of people that say things like, I'm Polly because this partner is my talking partner and this partner is my sex partner and this partner is my going out partner and this partner is my kid bearing partner and I call that Pokemon Polly. So, you know, maybe, maybe it works for some people. I don't really know. But at least in my experience and the experience people that I've met, Every relationship has to be a self-fulfilling, self-functional, self-reliant relationship. If my relationship with another person does not work unless I have this second person filling in the gaps, that second person has been reduced to what I would call a marital aid. So I'm no longer dating two people. I have a partner and a marital aid. And that's super immoral for me, right? I don't believe in that. I'm curious to what people say about that, but (laughs) I have found... And it's funny because I made all the same mistakes dating as a polyamorous person that I made dating by, as a monogamous person, but I made them all a second time because I thought that polyamorous changed the context and it just doesn't, right? And so what I would, the, the big mistakes that I made was when I was first monogamous, I, would, I didn't know what I could handle that I couldn't handle. So, you know, the first person I ever dated was pretty and nice, but not necessarily smart enough for me. 
And I thought, well, but she's pretty and nice. I can live with that. I couldn't live with that. <laughs> you know, she didn't challenge me enough. It didn't work out. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was frustrating. Right. And then, you know, I, I dated somebody that was, and sorry, when I say this, I mean like for my interests, when I say smart, I don't mean she was dumb. I just mean like we didn't meet intellectually. That's what I should say. She met my needs. That's what I should say. She met, met certain needs. She met my needs physically and emotionally, but not intellectually. And then I tried dating somebody that met my needs, you know, in, intellectually and physically, but not emotionally. And I dated somebody that met my needs emotionally and intellectually, but not physically. And in all cases, the relationship eventually fell apart. And so then when I started dating in polyamory, I thought sort of the same thing, but for new reasons. And partly because I was reading books and blogs, of people saying, here's the great thing about poly. You don't have to get all your needs met by a single partner. And I don't know if there's a way you can mean that that I think works ethically. There certainly is the opposite, which is no individual should be responsible for all of your needs. I guess I would just return to what I said earlier, which is it turns out is, you know, relationships, polyamorous relationships aren't even about getting needs met. They're about inviting people into your lives that improve your life. And that if you are looking to collect specific needs on a checklist, it's all the same problems as if that's how you're dating monogamously. Like if you ever had a friend that wrote, I need someone who has a good job and is gonna help me in my religious journey. And it, you know, and you made this little checklist and you just went around trying to date people based on that checklist, you just have a terrible time dating anyone. I would say that you have the same problem in polyamory if, if you approach relationships that way. I lost the train of thought, what was the original question? If your needs are not met by your spouse, do you find someone else to meet those needs or do you work on the Oh, gotcha. Right, right. Okay. So I, I guess what I would say is saying like, I don't believe in having a list of needs that your spouse is supposed to meet. You know, I definitely think you should be prepared to be completely happy with no partners. And I, I'm not the kind of person that says you shouldn't be dating someone unless you're happy being alone. But if you can manage being happy being alone first you'll find that dating comes a lot easier and happy dating comes a lot easier. I think it's a lot of pressure to put on someone to have your needs met. And I think it's just a covert way of saying, I need someone to complete me. But people are not, I mean, part of the part of the poly philosophy, right? So monogamy can make a claim like each person's half a person and these two people complete each other. You can't make that claim as a polyamorous because if you have an indeterminate number of people that can work with you, then there can't be a correct number to complete you. So I would say that my relationships enrich my life and that I look for relationships that increase my flourishing, not that meet needs. Although if you have a quote need or something that you feel is unfulfilled, you do need that for flourishing, right? Or you look for that to increase your flourishing. But no, I would not go outside of a relationship to polyamorous or non-monogamous scenarios to fix a broken marriage. That is a terrible idea from all the research, from everything I've read. It's like people who have a child to fix a broken marriage. Like we hate each other, so we'll have a kid and the kid won't make it worse. Like I would say the opposite. I would say the happier you are, the easier it is to be poly. That if your marriage is great, you might be able to be poly. <laughs> if your marriage is terrible, you need to deal with the marriage before you look at being opening up your marriage. And you definitely should know about your marriage, or your marriage to fix it. That won't fix it. So if I have problems in my relationship, if I'm feeling unhappy with my relationship, if I'm feeling like my relationship is detracting instead of uh, increasing my flourishing, I do not look elsewhere to fix it. I fix it inside of that relationship where I end that relationship the same way that I did when I was monogamous. You really answered that for me because that was, I would think there's plenty of people out there who think 
we're, we're not getting along that well right now, so... But there's so many things about this relationship that I really like, but in this particular area, it's not working, so... I'm not going to try and fix that. I'm not going to put the time and the effort into fixing that. I have this other person over here who I can do that with. But I like hearing you say that each relationship has to be complete and whole. Each relationship is going to take that sacrifice and that work and that love to make it work. I think it's one of my first two podcasts that I just did. I'm trying to slowly sort of lay out the ethical system I'm operating inside of. And one of the premises of the ethical system I'm operating inside of is that every relationship in the end is between the two people in the relationship. That brings us to the end of our show. Thank you so much, Mom, for coming on and sharing with us. I hope that everybody who is listening got something meaningful out of it. And I hope you'll join us next time for episode six. We're getting a new co-host, which should be very exciting. And we'll be discussing rights and how they interact inside of relationships. All right, everybody have a great week.